Good evening. I want to welcome any visitors that might be here. If you have a Bible, why don't you turn to the book of Revelation chapter 21, please. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to go all the way to chapter 22, verse 7. And um, the first um, eight verses, we're going to just kind of walk through in the introduction, and we'll just divide the others in three points. Um, The message, again, is entitled, The Heavenly City, the New Jerusalem. Uh, The Old Testament has much to say about the day of the Lord. There are many different uh, names that are synonymous for the day of the Lord. The word just day, capitalized, the day of Yahweh, that day, the great day. It appears more than 75 times in the Old Testament. It is identified with God's wrath upon a sinful world, a time of um, affliction, distress, darkness, indignation, dissolution, punishment, and judgment, both in the New and in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Zephaniah, Malachi, Matthew, Second Peter 3, all those places. If you look in your computer, punch it in, you'll get it. Yet, though the day of the Lord is often used um, and thought to describe a one-time event, and this is certainly true that it describes a one-time event, um, it in itself is broader in the sense that it describes a period in which many events take place. So the day of the Lord will happen simultaneously with the rapture of the church, which begins the day of wrath. But the day of the Lord also encompasses a long period of history, which a lot of events are in them, and we'll see as we move through them. Now, the scriptures identify the day of the Lord as encompassing the tribulation, that's the beginning of the seven years, the first three and a half, the great tribulation, the last three and a half, the millennial, the thousand-year reign, and it will bring in the new heaven and the new earth, which dwells righteousness. So we could say that the day of the Lord commences at the rapture, and it goes till the end of the thousand years. Whether it includes the white throne judgment, I would presume it does also, because that will be right after the thousand years. And then after the the white throne judgment is the new heaven and earth that we're going to be looking at. Now, for this reason, Peter said that the day of the Lord would come as a thief in the night and includes the time period extended to the new heaven and the new earth after the millennium in 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10 through 13. Listen to what he says. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. So that is the initial that commences it. In which the heavens will pass away with great noise. That's at the end of the thousand years. And the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in them will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be... um, Dissolve, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which 
the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promises, look for a new heaven, a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter, in that sweeping few verses, gives us the summary statement of the beginning and the end. Uh, he doesn't bother with the details in between. The eternal state is inaugurated right after the millennial age um, and kingdom, um, after the white throne judgment. And um, once again, Satan um, is judged for his last rebellion. Um, the unbelievers are judged at the white throne judgment because remember the Satan is bound for a thousand years during the millennial kingdom and he's let loose and he leads the last rebellion. And, and the unbelievers will be before the white throne judgment and the new heaven and the new earth is brought forth after the destruction of the millennial earth through fire. That's what Peter's describing. That's what here is described in Revelation 21, verse 1 through 8. Okay? So you can tie those things together. In fact, this is exactly what Paul the Apostle described to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 24 to 28. Listen to what he says. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God, um, the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet, the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. With the, in other words, with the exception of what Christ is doing. Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him, meaning the Father who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. So you have this program of the, of the, of the age of grace, the church age. You have the rapture. You have the first three and a half years tribulation. You have the abomination of desolation. You have the last three and a half years of great tribulation where the Antichrist reigns supreme. You have the coming of Jesus Christ to set up the kingdom, the destruction of the world empires, nations that are there to stop Jesus and to destroy Jerusalem. And he destroys them. He judges the nations who will go into the millennial kingdom or not, Matthew 25. And then you have the thousand-year reign. Satan is bound. We rule and reign with him in our glorified bodies, while those who didn't take the mark and the nations that survived the judgment of the nations occupy the millennial kingdom they are human just like you and i are now they repopulate people have to be saved there will be sin there will be death during the thousand years which many people don't understand wherever you have death you have sin we have sin you have death even though jesus is reigning then you have the white throne judgment then you have the new heaven the new earth as the old millennial earth is burned up the old heavens are burned up okay so that's the order that we see. And here in 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28, Paul is saying, then after that, then the Trinity will be all in all. Right now, it's presented to us in a, a threefold person and the one God for the purpose of redemption, reconciliation, the work of salvation. And then everything will go back to whatever was prior to time as we know it chronologically because out of eternity came chronological time. Chronological time will go back into eternity, the eternal state. Okay? And so... Um, 
But if you don't follow what, what he's saying here and stay on track with it, people can spiritualize it and give all kinds of subjective meanings. Now, once the new heaven and new earth are established, which is the eternal state, then the new Jerusalem descends out of heaven from God. The heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, uh, is distinct from the new heaven and the new earth, as we'll see. Um, the new heaven, here in chapter 21, verse 1, and earth is described as having no sea. There's no ocean. Look at verse 1. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, is described as a bride adorned for her husband in verse 2 of 21. The new relationship of God with man are described in perfect fellowship with the absence of sin and its effects in verse 3 and 4. And the stamp of authority for the genuineness of the new eternal order is described as faithful and true in verses 5 and 6 of 21. And the heirs of the new eternal order are described as overcomers in verse 7 and 8. There you have your first eight verses that follows the chronological order that moves through the millennial kingdom. Now some believe that what is being described from Revelation 21.9 to 22.7 is a recapitulation of the thousand-year reign by going back and describing it more fully. But if you mark the important differences, they cannot be mistaken. You would have to ignore them to hold this view that the passage is describing the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom has been destroyed through fire. He's not giving further information to put back. It's very, very evident. Now, some believe and teach that the new Jerusalem that we'll see here, um, the eternal state, exists simultaneously with the millennial reign on the earth in that it is suspended over the millennial earth while Christ and the church dwell in the New Jerusalem, commuting back and forth to reign. And you'll pick that up on some uh, commentaries uh, of end times, and they present it that way. I don't see that concept at all in the text of Revelation anywhere. You cannot teach from the absence of Scripture or by subjectivism, though the concept may certainly be possible, anything is possible. But if I take the text and read it exactly as it says, I see a chronological revelation of the termination of the millennial kingdom and then the new heaven and earth, the eternal state, followed by the particular details that he will give there in the remaining 21 and 22. Because he's just moving through that succession. So I think that a failure to distinguish the millennial from the eternal state in the same Old Testament passage will contribute to the interpretation of both existing together, like Isaiah 65 and Isaiah um, passages some, uh, 66 and, and, and many others. Now remember, in the Old Testament, you have prophetic things that are short-term and long-term. Or, or there are things that succeed chronologically, but they're not made distinction. So you have to compare the details that are in there, and that clears it up. 
This is the eternal state which is also mentioned by Isaiah, like I said, in 65. And also the word new, kainos, means new in quality, uh, not renovation as a thousand years. This is altogether different. There's no sea. There's no sin. There's no death. You can't make them the same and you can't make them simultaneous. It's impossible. So let me do this. We want to look at the heavenly city, the New Jerusalem, by a threefold description recorded here. So the remain of the material that I said will divide it in three parts. From verse 9 here of chapter 21, um, verse 9 to 21, we want to look at the particular details of the New Jerusalem. Now that we've seen the chronological order where it fits, okay? And then from 22 to 27 of 21, we'll look at the particular glory of the New Jerusalem. And then we'll finish up in the first seven verses of 22, the particular perfection of the New Jerusalem. So the particular details of the New Jerusalem, let, let's just follow along here, verse 9 to 21. Um, notice 9 to 11, the bride is both the church and the city as Babylon, her counterpart, was a woman and the city that we saw earlier in Revelation. In verse 9, the identity of the city, look carefully there, is said to be the bride the land's wife. This is a literal city, not symbolic. The figure of speech is called a metonymy, using one phrase to substitute for another. The city for the bride, the lamb's wife. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with seven last plagues revealed this to John, verse 9 tells us. So the angel is still the agent of revelation. At the end of the middle there of nine, notice the angel said, come and I will show you the bride, the lamb's wife. The nature of the city is purity that follows in verse 10 and 11, the first portion of 11. John was carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed him a great city, the holy Jerusalem, verse 10 says, the beginning there. The city descended out of heaven from God, verse 10 tells us. Its origin is confirmed, descending out of heaven from God. The same as verse 2. It is not, or is, it is not, but some believe the city may be suspended, as I said, but it really isn't. Okay? Now, whether it's suspended during the eternal state, that, that could be, okay? Certainly gives us that impression, but not simultaneously during the thousand-year reign. That's the only distinction we make. Notice the city has the glory of God in verse 11, the first part. The beauty is one of a kind. Verse 11. Her light was like the most precious stone. Her semblance was like a jasper stone. Her appearance was clear as crystal. This is the city Abraham looked for. Listen to the book of Hebrews. By faith he dwelt in the land of promise as a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which, whose foundation, whose builder and maker is God. This is the city that Abraham was waiting for. <laughs> All right? Now look at 12 
through 14. The number of walls and gates of the city is given to us. I'm going to move from 12 on down. In 12, there is a great and high wall with 12 gates. There are 12 angels guarding the respective gates. The gates have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. Still verse 12. Then in 13, there are three gates on the east, the north, the south, and the west. No one being at any disadvantage to have access to God. The entrances. In 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, each having the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The prophets and apostles are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. When he gets to verse 15 through 17, we get the measures or the measurements of the city and the walls. This is a literal city that we're talking about, okay? The one having the measuring rod is the angel in verse 15. The city measured out and it came to 12,000 furlongs, approximately 1,500 miles square. Verse 16, 1,500 miles square, okay? Not flatland, but square. The city is a cube, not a sphere. It's a cube. The city is not only flat surface area, but the volume would be occupied about the size of the moon. So it's not only living on the surface, but it's a cube. A total of 3.375 billion cubic miles. Now, if you're a math whiz, you know that's a heck of a lot of room. <laughs> Considering a single individual occupying a building one mile long, one mile wide, and 10 feet high, there could be 1.78 trillion people. 178 billion people at 100 feet high and one mile square. This was 33 times more than the world population of 1991 of 5.3 billion. The present population, March of 2016, I just got it off the internet, 7.4 billion. So we have grown 2.1 billion in 15 years. That still leaves a lot of room. The Holy of Holies, remember, was a perfect square, perhaps foreshadowing the city of heaven. The um, tabernacle was 15 by 30, the first room. You had on the left-hand side when you went in, the candelabra on the right, the, the table of showbread, in the middle, the altar of incense, you had the veil, and then you had the Holy of Holies, 15 by 15 by 15, a perfect cube. By the way, all of gold in Solomon's temple. So perhaps prophetically of that. The city is larger than the city of Ezekiel during the millennial kingdom, if you were with us. In Ezekiel 48, gives all the dimensions and everything. 
The wall measured in verse 17 out 144 cubits. A cubit is usually the distance from your middle finger to the elbow. Usually the average is 18 inches. There are other shorter and longer cubits, 17 and 21. But most scholars take the 18 to be the medium and the most common. That would make the walls 216 feet. Some people object to these kind of measurements. Well, it shouldn't pose any problem since the walls of Babylon at the time of Nebuchadnezzar were 300 feet high, 80 feet thick, and extended 35 feet below the ground. This is the eternal state. This is no sin, no death. This has got to work. <laughs> so what's the problem? There's no problem. Now look at verse 18 to 21. The um, constructing material of the walls of the city and the gates is interesting. In verse 18, the construction of this wall was of jasper first, the beginning of 18. The construction of the city was pure gold like clear glass, verse 18 says. You know, men, men kill for gold. Men risk their life for gold down here. God paves the streets with gold in the eternal state. <laughs> and there's not going to be anybody trying to cut out a, a block out. Okay, it's just not going to happen. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. Amazing. Golden streets, gems on the walls. Verse 19 and 20. First foundation, jasper. Second, sapphire. Third, chalcedony. Fourth, emerald. Fifth, sardonyx. Sixth, sardis. Seventh, chrysolite. Eighth, beryl. Nine, topaz. Tenth, chrysophrase. Eleventh, jacinth. Twelfth, amethyst. Beautiful. Gold, gems. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. How'd you like the size of those? Each individual gate was one pearl, verse 21, the beginning says. Now, pearls were not a Jewish gem. Jews never sought pearl, and still they're not a gem that the Jews really seek valuable or anything. It's a Gentile gem. The Gentiles value the pearl and they seek the pearl out. Interesting. The pearl of the, of the uh, pearl of great price, who sold all that he uh, purchased, to, to, uh, sold all that he had to purchase the field to get the pearl, is, is an interesting parallel to that. As in the age of grace, God is uh, saving both Jew and Gentile out of the world. That which is hidden and valued to be possessed on earth will be considered as common and open for all to see. Different values, different priorities, a different world altogether. The word street there literally means a Broadway. Vast. 
when John got this revelation, it must have blown his mind. I mean, you try to stop and think for the day that John lived with the mentality and the best of his technology of the day. And then God demonstrates all these things and how is he going to describe it? We've already seen through the chapters 6 to 19 all the different plagues and everything else and the description he gives to us when he's looking into the future with modern day warfare and everything. Trying to describe it with the vocabulary that he had. Newell in his commentary says this, because of the literalness of his description, if gold does not mean gold, not pearls, not precious stones, not exact measurements, real dimensions, then the Bible gives nothing accurate or reliable. It's simple. He's going out of his way to give very literal things and specific measurements. So these are the particular details of the new Jerusalem in the eternal state. Next comes the particular glory of the new Jerusalem in um, verse 22 to 27 here in chapter 21. In 22, notice that there is no temple. John says, but I saw no temple in it. And the reason is given. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. During the seven-year tribulation, you know that the Antichrist will build a temple for the Jews. And he will stop the sacrifices halfway through it and declare himself God and enter the temple. And he will fulfill the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet. And Jesus made that very clear in Matthew 24, 15. You get that in Revelation 13, 16, and 17 in other passages. Now, during the millennium, there will be a temple. The one described by Ezekiel in detail from chapter 40 to 48. So the temple that we've studied in Ezekiel 40 to 48, that's during the thousand year reign. So you've had the first temple that Solomon built. You have the second temple of Ezra, okay, in the days of Nehemiah. You have Herod's temple, which is not a third temple. It's the second temple, beautified and enlarged. Titus destroyed that temple in 70 A.D. There has been no temple since for 2,000 years. The next temple, which is the third temple, will be the Antichrist temple. Which the Antichrist will enter and declare himself God. Then the fourth temple will be during the Millennial Kingdom. This is the eternal state. There's no temple needed at all. God is the temple. Okay? During this eternal state, God himself will be the temple, the abiding place of his people. Now, notice in 23, there is uh, no sun or moon. We've already seen there's no sea. Surfers get bummed out. That's the way it is. Tough. No sea, no ocean. Now, stop and think about it. What does the oceans do? The oceans school our planet. They provide the equilibrium of everything, uh, the land and, and water, isosceles and all that. Uh, the, um, the moon, the gravitational pull, 
all the seasons, all that kind of stuff, it's all tied together. Okay? This is the eternal state. We won't need that stuff. So the city has no need for the sun or the moon uh, to shine on it. Verse 23 says, the reason is given again for the glory of God illuminates it. He's it. The source of this of his glory and light is given. The Lamb is its light. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 19 and 20 spoke of the eternal state in the city of God. Listen. The sun shall no longer be your light by day, nor your brightness shall be moon give light to you. For the Lord will be to you an everlasting light, and your God your glory. Your sun shall no longer go down, nor shall your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and the days of your mourning shall be ended. Isaiah, way back there. 700 years before Jesus. He spoke about what John describes. The Old Testament Shekinah glory is this eternal presence having the glory of God here. Remember the Shekinah glory left the temple, right? After Babylon went there and Ezekiel saw Ichabod, the glory of the Lord has departed. Jesus was the true light. And is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. First John 1 John 1.9 Jesus said, I am the light of the world in John 8.12. And John tells us, God is light and in him is no darkness at all. First John 1 John 1.5 So, in contrast to what the millennial, though Jesus is reigning and ruling and we with him. And though the earth has been redone and animals are no longer fierce, there is still sin and death. Here we see there's nothing but glory and there's no darkness at all. There's no more sin. There's no more death. The one demands the other. Okay? Look at verse 24 through 27. There will be no rebellion or opposition in contrast to the millennial kingdom. Nations in verse 24 and kings will exist in the eternal state and make visits to the new Jerusalem. In verse 24 says, And the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. The nations and kings are those of the millennial reign that did not follow Satan's last rebellion at the end of the thousand years. Just like those who didn't take um, the mark of the beast into the millennial, the nations that didn't follow Satan's last rebellion enter the eternal state. Is that clear? Okay? In the millennium, though Jesus reigns with the rod of iron, as I said, those living on the earth repopulate having a sin nature and they have free will. Those in the eternal state in the New Jerusalem are in their glorified bodies. No sin, no sin nature will exist. The eternal state marks a whole different quality. Since the New Jerusalem appears to be suspended over the new earth, and these nations and kings come and bring their glory into the heavenly city, the inference is clear. They do not reside in the city 
but on the new earth and come to the new Jerusalem. So they'll be like pilgrimages, see? And you see a lot of the parallelism from the Old Testament, different things. But the, the quality and the state is totally different. Now look at 25. All the nations, kings and people, will have equal and complete access in the eternal state in the new Jerusalem. In verse 25, the first portion, its gates shall not be shut all at all by day. Open all the time. In 25, the explanation is that there shall be no night there. Now, daylight saving time is great. You can work longer, right? I don't know why they keep messing with it. Somebody sent me a text, and it has this Indian. And he's standing there, and it's written on a plaque. It says, only the government would think cutting off a foot from this, uh, from this blanket and adding it to the bottom would give it a longer blanket. Uh, it's, it's ridiculous. It was for World War II. It's done. It, 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 it's silly. You should leave it alone. Um, the explanation is that there's no night at all. There is no sun or moon, as verse 23 says. They were created to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Genesis 1.14. That's when God created time in its chronological, sequential order of present, past, and future. He brought it out of eternity. Now that chronological linear time of past, present, and future goes back into the eternal state. Full cycle. Now the purpose of their existence and coming to God is stated. Look at 26. And they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. This has already been stated in verse 24. Both words are the same. All that man will glory in and honor will be God. There will be no more rebellion. It will be like in heaven prior to the fall and rebellion of Lucifer. The only one entering the city of the new Jerusalem are the glorified saints. Look at verse 27. But there shall be or there shall by no means enter into anything that, or into it anything that defiles or causes any abomination or a lie. But only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The church. The church which reigned with Christ during the thousand year reign. The kingdom age, the millennial kingdom. All phrases describe the same period of time. The tribulation saints martyred for their faith and those who survived. The nation of Israel, the reconciled wife of Yahweh, fulfilling all the promise of the old covenant and the new. And those saved during the millennium that didn't follow Satan's rebellion. So again, God is just. Those who are obedient, who trust him, whether it be the church age, the millennial kingdom, they enter into the eternal state. 
Listen to the author of the book of Hebrews in Hebrews 13, 14. He says, For here we have no continuing city, but we seek the one to come. So we are sojourners and pilgrims, as the scriptures tell us. This is not our home. It's nice. You grow up, you buy a house, you get some stuff, and there's some beautiful places you can visit in the United States and the world. And it's nice to just go and kick back or fishing or something for a weekend. And there's some beautiful places, some neat experiences. But all of this is nothing compared to the eternal state. We can't even comprehend it. The glory of God existed in the garden, you remember, prior to the fall. Quite different than after the fall. And so it will exist in the eternal state to its glorious radiance of Shekinah glory. These are the particular glory of the new Jerusalem. Now again, all we're doing is going down verse by verse, reading what it says and letting it mean what it says. It's called inductive Bible study. You're making observation, you're recording Just what it's saying, you're looking for the interpretation in the context, what it's saying, whether it's literal or figurative, which it is. And we're backing it up with prophecies from the Old Testament that are identical, predating this by 600 years. The third part here is verse 1 through 7 of chapter 22. It is the particular perfection of the New Jerusalem. In verse 1, notice there will be a river... Of life. John was shown the river of life, and it's pure and clean as crystal in verse 1, the beginning. The river is pure, free from every admixture and uncleanness. The river has water of life. The word for life is Zoe, a very common name today. It means one who possesses vitality of life. This is its basic understanding. Since this is the eternal state and looks back to the original creation prior to the fall, it is describing that absolute fullness of life belonging to God and imparted to the believer. He's our creator. He's the one that created us in his image after his likeness prior to the fall. What messed it up was the fall. (laughs) If there had been no fall... What would have happened? Well, we would have just been in fellowship with God. What would, I don't know. But God knew the end from the beginning. And since this is the eternal state, God is the one that is in complete control without any opposition, without any obstacles. Everything is subject to him, even as 1 Corinthians 15 we read. Now, look at verse 1 there at the end. John saw this river proceeds from the throne of God and the Lamb. Ezekiel's river, if you remember in the millennial, comes from the temple. Ezekiel 47.1. So you see the contrast here, okay? There's a distinction. 
Zechariah's river in the millennial comes from Jerusalem and heals the Dead Sea and flows to the Mediterranean Sea. Zechariah 14, 4 through 8. The Genesis River, if you remember, went out from Eden into four heads. One of them skirted the whole land of Hivala, where there is gold. And that gold, the land was good. It makes it very clear. Bedulum, onyx stone, Genesis 2, 10 through 12. So here as we see the description of this gold and these gems, and we look at what happened prior to the fall, we see a great parallel. How interesting that um, all these precious metals and all these gems uh, are seen in between is the fall. And after the fall, before and after, you have these things present. And, and, and they're not things that men are coveting and, and killing and fighting for. Look at verse 2. There will be the tree of life. John saw in the middle of his its tree and on either side of the river the tree of life. The tree of life is on both sides of the river, notice. The tree of life is in the middle of the street. The Broadway. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden in the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Genesis 2.9. The choice of living eternally with God without sin was available from the beginning. <laughs> it was available from the beginning. Man chose not to. A choice. God said, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Literally, dying you shall die. In other words, the minute a baby is born, he begins to die. He's dying, 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 first birthday. Dying, 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 21st birthday. Dying, 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 65th birthday. Dying, dying, really dies, 71. But he's been dying all along. But we celebrate his birthday. But his birth is the first day of his death. Because of sin. God wasn't lying, was he? The day you eat, you shall surely die. Dying, you shall die. The minute he partook, immediately. They died spiritually first. They saw their nakedness. They were aware of sin and evil. They try to cover themselves. And their physical being began to die. Though they lived six, seven, eight hundred years, and then it was reduced, they literally died. Read the record in Genesis. And he lived, the longest living person was Methuselah. 969 years. The day of the flood. He died. Now God guarded the tree of life by a cherub with a flaming sword, if you remember, in Genesis 3.24. If you remember the vision of Ezekiel, it climaxes with the description of the river that flows out of the sanctuary, flowing 
to the Mediterranean Sea and healing the Dead Sea and, and trees along the banks bearing fruit every month for food and the leaves for medicine, Ezekiel 47, 1 through 12. That's the thousand-year reign. This is different. John tells us two things about the tree of life here. Look at verse 2. The tree of life bore 12 fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. This fruit, without any doubt, is related and connected to the eternal state of the believer's life. We don't know how, but there's some connection with this. The body of the believer is the glorified one. We're glorified from the minute that we're raptured. We shall not all sleep. We shall be changed in the moment, the twinkling of an eye. The dead in Christ shall rise first. The Lord will descend from heaven with a shout of the voice of the ark of the trump of God. And then we shall be heart puzzled, suddenly, violently glorified. And the bodies will be raised and they will receive their glorified body on the way up as we are. Notice in two still, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Since it is the eternal state, there can be no disease or death as in the millennial kingdom. Listen to Ezekiel forty-seven twelve in the millennial kingdom. Along the banks of the river on this side and that will grow all kinds of trees used for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear fruit every month because their water flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for medicine. So once again, the distinction between the two. The only thing it can be for is for the perpetuation of the eternal state and benefit for the nations, kings, and people who are all subject to God without any thought or attempt of rebellion as overcomers. It's just the submission to God in a way that we will never see until that day. Because as long as there's sin nature, there is constant rebellion, self-will. You see, prior to the fall, there was only two wills. God's will and Satan wills. But once Satan introduced deception to Adam and Eve, now you have the distinct will of each human being as a rebel. They're not identical. You've got a world of rebels against God, against his will. Notice verse 3 and 4. There will be um, only blessings. This is the affirmation of the positive in verse 2, but from the negative. And there shall be no more curse. The curse brought in sin and death, sorrow and pain. The authority of God will be reigning supremely here. Verse 3. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit will be there, but under a different relationship that we don't exactly know, according to Paul. Again, 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-eight bears repeating. Now, when all things are made subject to him, the Father, 
Then the Son himself will be also subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. What does that mean? I don't know. But the Trinity is described and recorded according to their function for the purpose of the salvation of man. All being God. All being all-knowing. All-powerful. All-present. Man being saved in the glorified state, the eternal state, there will be no need for that. So whatever it is, we're all going to find out together. Notice it's still in three. And the servants shall serve him, those coming out of the thousand-year reign. See? Look at four. The fellowship that was intended from the beginning will finally exist. They shall see his face. Verse 4, Moses could not see God's face in Exodus 33, 20, 23. You can't see my glory. You'll die. So he put his hand over him as he passed by and let him see his afterglow. Remember he had to put a veil over his face? Jesus said, the pure in heart shall see God in Matthew 5, 8. The book of Hebrews says that without holiness, no man shall see God. Hebrews 12, 14. And then he says, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Now the Antichrist is going to give a mark on the right hand or the forehead. <laughs> These are the servants of God. This is the mark of ownership. The 144,000 youths that God will use, um, they have the mark of God on their forehead. Revelation 7, verse 1 through 8 and 14, verse 1. The following of those who follow Antichrist, again, the right hand or the forehead, Revelation 13, 16. So, it's not only where the identifying mark is, but when is it that you bear that mark that makes a big difference, okay? <laughs> Look at five. There will be perpetual day. This is the summary statement. Listen to it. There should be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun. For the Lord God gives them light. Again, he has stated this is a summary statement of it. This reinforces the eternal state. And they shall reign forever and ever. Time without end. The witness of faith, all of them, died in faith. Hebrews says, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them. Embracing them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out of, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Hebrews 11, verse 13 through 16. Notice lastly, you have verse 6 and 7 of 22. There will be 
and accountability for all these words. Listen carefully. The record is God's divine revelation and prophetic looking to the future fulfillment. The first part of six. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. Underline those words. All that read and record can count on all this happening. It is both genuine and reliable. The record was communicated through a chain of command, if you remember. The Lord God of the Holy Prophets sent his angel with the revelation. The angel showed God's servant the things which must surely take place. God to the angel, the angel to John, John to every person who reads the word servants is in the plural. The chain of command is God, Jesus, angel, John, the servants. And you have that at the beginning of Revelation chapter 1, verse 1. And it follows through all the way. These things will surely or suddenly take place, it says. The book opens with the same statement in Revelation 1, 1. It opens with the same statement. Two bookends. Look at seven. The record is to warn and prepare the hearer to believe, listen, and obey. Behold, I am coming quickly. It means suddenly. This is stated three times in this last chapter. Verse 7, verse 12, verse 20. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book, verse 7 at the end says. This is the sixth beatitude in the book of Revelation. The book opens with the same promise to him who reads, hears, and keeps the words because the time is near. Chapter 1, verse 3. There's only one way for us to respond to all these things that have been described regarding the eternal state. I think Paul nails it. Romans 11, 33 through 36. Listen carefully. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord Yahweh? Or who has become his counselor? Or who has first given to him, and it shall be repaid to him. For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. (laughs) That you and I would even be able to understand in the smallest way, let alone believe all this, is great evidence that we're not under our own all nature. It's just too much to believe in the natural state. This is God's revelation of himself. You can depend on it. There's no contradiction. There is no error. God doesn't exaggerate. God doesn't make false promises. 
So these, this is the particular perfection of the New Jerusalem. What an incredible uh, description of the uh, heavenly city and the New Jerusalem that will exist in the eternal state. Described here by the particular details of the New Jerusalem as we've seen. The particular glory of the New Jerusalem and the particular perfection of the New Jerusalem. Nothing like we've ever known or partaken of or witnessed up to this point. But we know that we've tasted of the new divine life. We've tasted and partaken of the divine power and glory. And we know that what he's done in part, in spite of sin nature, he will perfect to the very end. And we will be just like him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and goodness. We thank you for tonight. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your word, Lord, that we can study. And that, Lord, we're not looking for some mansion here, Lord. We're looking to be with you. As you're praying, if you're here tonight, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you here to be saved. If you've never been born again, if you've never acknowledged that Jesus Christ died for you, then God has brought you to hear and to make a decision on your eternity. If you believe like that thief on the cross, it said to Jesus, remember me when you come into the kingdom. Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Faith must point you back to God's word, the revelation of God. It's not a feeling. It's not an emotion. It's not something you build up. It's God's conviction through His Holy Spirit that sheds light, that allows you to see you as a sinner, in need of forgiveness, and the, the wrath of God is upon you, but that that can be removed from you by trusting and believing in Jesus Christ who died for your sins and rose from the dead. And if you believe that, then that's the work of God. But he doesn't make the decision or force you to make a decision. He leaves the ball in your court. So that when he judges you, if you choose to reject, you have no excuse on judgment day. He gave you at least one opportunity. Maybe many, many more, but at least one. Otherwise, he couldn't be good, he couldn't be just, and he couldn't judge us. And so maybe you're over the internet. This is a prayer of repentance if you want to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Right where you sit, He's going to save you right now. Give you His Holy Spirit, make you His child. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit, Lord. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.